This is No Ordinary Wednesday, an in-depth look at the events and trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. A warm welcome. I'm Jeremy Max. Now, after a two-month surge in global COVID infections, the World Health Organization has said that cases appear to have plateaued. But has the war against the virus turned for good or can we expect more waves in months or even years to come? In just a moment, I'm going to put that question to Dr. Jimmy Muchachetere, a senior healthcare equity analyst for Investec Wealth and Investment UK. And if one doctor isn't enough for you, stay tuned for Dr. Greg Klein, Head of Corporate Accounts at Investec for Business, who shares his prognosis on the continued rise of global shipping costs, now up by an astonishing 336% year on year. We look at what this means for South African importers and exports and discuss Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon's recent announcement that Transnet is inviting private partners to fund a 100 billion rand super terminal at Durban's port. Could this be another big step in the president's reform agenda? And then for this week's burning question, a double header for Investec's chief economist, Annabel Bishop. What's behind the RAND's recent jitters? And did Stats SA just wave a magic wand and make South Africa's economy 11% bigger? Is this legitimate statistical modeling at work or perhaps a sleight of hand? Before we begin, a quick side note. All our interviews are recorded via online platforms due to COVID protocols. So please don't let barking dogs, hardy dars and sound glitches distract you from our conversation. So let's jump into the first topic today. With COVID-19's latest global wave showing signs of subsiding, have we finally turned the tide on the formidable Delta variant? We welcome now from Investex London office, Dr. Jimmy Muchachetere, who is a senior equity analyst. So, Jimmy, firstly, a very warm welcome, and I want to start with this, if I can. Uh, You recently wrote an article for Investex Content Hub, Focus on why you're hopeful that we're going to, and I'm going to quote you, learn to live with this virus effectively. What did you mean by that? Well, thank you, thank you for having me. What I meant by that is that this virus is, is now spread so widely that eliminating it is going to be impossible. It is plausible that we can eliminate the virus, but it is improbable. And this is because elimination depends on two main factors. One is that we can contain the virus such that it bends itself out, much like Ebola. Or two, the population is no longer vulnerable to infection, uh, and this could be through immunity developed uh, via vaccines or via natural infection. But however, this second point, uh, uh, immunity, it rests on the virus not mutating enough to invade the immune mechanisms, which seems unlikely given the high case numbers and how widely spread out it is. Now, the scientific community is coalescing around this idea that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is going to be endemic. And endemic means that the virus is going to be circulating in pockets of the world for many years to come. There are many articles published in the big scientific journals that have got this uh, prediction. And we have to remember that with many respiratory viruses, the typical outcome is that they become an endemic. And, you know, we, we already live with four endemic coronaviruses, or C43229E, 
NL63 HKU1. Not many will be familiar to people, and you know, all combined have not caused as much consternation as SARS-CoV-2. And yet they live amongst us and have done so for a long time. So it is quite likely that the outcome is that we are not going to eliminate this virus per se, but it's going to be living amongst us. Now, a joker in the pack, and there is always one, is how well this virus establishes itself in wild animals. Viruses such as yellow fever, Ebola, and chikungunya continue to persist because of animal reservoirs. If this happens as well, then this could also make it harder for us to eliminate it. And so the central scenario should therefore become we will have to continue to live with this virus and to learn to do so properly. Let's talk now, if we can, about mitigation or prevention. In your note, you outline the various vaccination approaches taken by different countries from the zero COVID strategy followed by Australia and New Zealand to countries like Singapore that view vaccinations as a means of living with COVID. Is it possible to say which of those strategies is 100% right? I wish it were possible, but this subject of a zero COVID strategy against managing the virus is is a subject of great debate in epidemiology. And the reason why it is so is is that there are so many moving parts to it. Government strategy, for starters, needs to be viewed in conjunction of their government's ability to enforce its strategy and its citizens to acquiesce to that strategy. If people get lockdown fatigue, for example, and only pay lip service to the rules, this may detract from a very good strategy. So it means the zero COVID strategy may work in some countries, depending on the political and socioeconomic factors and cultural factors, and may not work in other countries at all. So that's the starting point. The second thing with the zero COVID strategy is that herd immunity is is a moving target. Um, And this is because immunity waxes and wanes. And this depends on continued experience with the virus or not getting continued experience with the virus. It depends on whether the immunity continues to last, whether we get new variants that evade immunity. And so because head immunity becomes a moving target, the zero COVID strategy may work for a while, but may not work for a long time. What we have had recently is detailed real-world data coming out of Israel and the UK, uh, and this suggests that neutralizing antibodies do start to wane after six to eight months. This was recently published in the journal Nature, and if anyone is interested, they can find it there. But this is, you have to remember that neutralizing antibodies are just one part of the immune system. When one has had uh, immunity and they get contact with a new infection, we have what are called memory B cells, which quickly manufacture new antibodies. And we also have what are called T cells, which fight off new infections. Both these memory B cells and T cells and other cells are, are hard to measure. And so we don't have a full picture in terms of how quickly our immunity lasts or wanes. Trouble is, these other parts of the immune system may not necessarily block transmission. And it is the vaccine's ability to block transmission while retaining efficacy against new variants that makes a zero COVID strategy possible. But you know, as you can see, it is possible to achieve temporary herd immunity in populations with high vaccine coverage or high immunity. But for the vast majority of countries, it is unlikely that these conditions can be met on an ongoing basis for zero COVID strategy to be sustainable. 
And just a final question then, and focusing on what you said about resilience and mutation. The Delta variant, which has occupied our minds around the world, exploding in India earlier this year and quickly spreading globally. But we also know that highly vaccinated populations emerged relatively unscathed. The question is, and I guess it's an unknown, will the vaccines then stand up to new variants? We just don't know enough about that, do we? No, we don't. Uh, And again, I think you're right. This is yet another open question. Uh, Our experience suggests that we are going to have more variants, just as we did with Alpha, Beta, Delta, and the Lambda variants. Uh, And we have to remember that the raison d'etre of a virus is really to evolve for survival. That is not to kill off its host as it is no longer able to survive, but to spread as quickly as possible and as easily as possible. So we can take it as red that given how widespread SARS-CoV-2 is, we are going to get new variants. But there are three reasons to be hopeful. One is better tracking and surveillance of the disease. The second is better prevention of the disease. And the third is better treatments of the disease. On the surveillance, there's a lot of work which is going underway. And this is really geared to identify new and deadlier strains, coupled with using artificial intelligence to predict what kind of point mutations. Uh, for example, the K41ZN uh, mutation in, that was found in the beta variant originally described in South Africa, which could result in immune escaping mechanisms. So being able to look out for these and predict them, uh, and this is a global effort, gives one real confidence that we're taking a pro active approach when it comes to this disease. The second reason is better prevention. Uh, And this really is where vaccines come to the fore. Uh, Now, the first, the vaccines that we have right now were the original ones designed against the wild type virus or the wild type strain. And fortunately, they do retain sufficient activity against the Delta variant to weaken the link between case numbers and deaths. In the UK, for example, the public health body recently estimated that vaccines prevented 100,000 deaths since the beginning of the pandemic, which is you know, a really big source of comfort. But in addition to that, we have got second and third generation vaccines already in development, and these are geared to address new emergent strains. In addition to vaccines, we also have antibody cocktails. A good example is the Roche and Regeneron antibody cocktail, which recently received approval. And this is really treat people who end up with severe disease and are in hospital, but before they get into the ICU. Uh, and remember, this is the same cocktail that President Donald Trump had to leave the White House for and going to hospital to get because it was a specialist medicine. The last bit of uh, news that gives us a lot of hope is on the prevention side. Recently, AstraZeneca has... Uh, published data on its antibody cocktail uh, of medicines, which cut infection rate by over 70%. And this means that people, for people who are shielding or are vulnerable, say they've got uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, they're elderly, they're on cancer treatments, and they're really vulnerable to getting infection. If you give them this antibody cocktail from AstraZeneca is a preventative medicine. The vast majority of people are not going to get the disease. But also on the treatment side of things, we have improved treatment protocols. For example, how much oxygen we give and when we give it, you know, in terms of blood thinners, as well as steroids. So you put all these things together, it gives us a hope for a better future where the sting will be largely taken out of the disease. And one may see a scenario where COVID-19 becomes like the flu. Every year, many people get it. Some end up in hospital. Some, unfortunately, will die. But for many, it will become a mild illness. And that's where we're going to leave it. I'm going to thank Dr. Jimmy Muchachetere, a senior equity analyst at Investec Wealth and Investment UK. Thank you so much for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thank you. 
In a moment, we'll chat to Investex Greg Klein about what's pushing up global shipping prices. But first, a reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. Now, being an importer or exporter in South Africa right now is certainly not for the faint-hearted. From COVID-19 demand shocks to cyber attacks on Transnet and the dearth of shipping containers right before the retail high season, it really is a mass conundrum. And now the World Composite Container Index, it tracks the cost of shipping a 40-foot container, is up by 336% year-on-year. I'm going to welcome now Dr. Greg Klein, Head of Corporate Accounts for Investec for Business, as we discuss this issue on No Ordinary Wednesday. Greg, the past few months have been among the worst on record for the global shipping industry. I think it's fair to say that. Maybe this is a good place for us to jump in then. Can you sum up for us the factors that have culminated in what some have termed a perfect storm? Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me, Jeremy. I think that when COVID-19 when COVID hit and uh, the global economy went into a lockdown, we saw a number of, uh, of shipping lines were sitting with uh, a lot of supply and no demand. And so what happened was that uh, a lot of ships were parked. And subsequently, as we saw an economic recovery, there was an unanticipated surge, particularly from the US. And so the shipping companies diverted their vessels onto the more profitable routes. So we saw that the uh, intra-Asia, the Asia-US routes, vessels which were typically servicing uh, the east route down to South Africa, but now moved onto shipping lanes, uh, which went through to the US. And what this meant is that capacity became an issue. Freight, price, freight prices went up tenfold. So what typically used to cost between $800 and $1,500 a container to get it from uh, from China through to South Africa, Durban, um, are now sitting somewhere you know, upwards of $9,000, which is a which is a Massive cost input in terms of final cost that's passed on to consumers for getting goods onto the shelf. So there's a real domino effect. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. And I think when it comes down to availability of actual vessels, we've seen that what's happened is the impact is more than just the ships themselves because um, you need containers to, to put goods into. So, you know, containers which typically would move between different ports now, you know, if they move to the US, they then put into a truck or on rail going to Midwest to get those containers back becomes quite an issue. So that's resulted in a, a shortage of containers. And so you've got delays that are now occurring, you know, right through from port side to final delivery point. What we've also seen as a result of the pandemic is that issue. We've seen factories that have shut down. We've seen, uh, you know, infections, outbreaks have happened on the vessel port side. So the people operating the equipment to move cargo off vessels, you know, we've seen partial closures of terminals. There's one recently in Ningbo, which has a, a as you've as you've relayed, a domino effect. And so all of these, you know, in terms of a perfect storm, we've seen that it is uh, it's increased the cost to move goods globally, and you now the capacity is a real issue that needs to be factored in. So let's look at extrapolating this a little further, if we can. Let me refer you to a recent logistics update from Investec that says these global supply chain disruptions that we're talking about are expected to last until at least the first quarter of next year. So what, in effect, does this mean for importers particularly? Greg, as we get to this busy time of the year, Black Friday is almost upon us, and so is the festive season. So, you know, with our peak trading seasons, importers are going to need to juggle a couple of things. First is the longer lead times that uh, are going to be experienced, what uh, what importers are used to prior to COVID, and what this means from a supplier, right, from factory, 
making sure that goods are available, the sailing times, the number of vessels that are available on routes. We've seen with port delays that there's an increase in the number of transshipments. Um, you know, that is vessels that are having to make a stop at Singapore or another port before getting through to Durban. And there's also a degree of uncertainty with goods arriving on time. I think that RAND volatility is going to be a major factor. As we've seen, there's Fed tapering, which is likely going to come into effect before the end of the year. And so an increase in US interest rates are going to affect the RAND as well. And you know, this juggling that I've referred to, importers are typically going to try and get the best freight rate while making sure there's availability of vessels. And at the same time, they want to uh, you know, trade on the best, uh, the best RAND price that they get for their dollars you know, that they need to purchase. So you know, all of this is, a, is a, a difficult thing to manage. But the upshot here is the more difficult it becomes to juggle those balls that you refer to, it results in two things, either shortage or non-availability, or South African consumers will just have to dig deeper. Yeah, I think, you know, you know to look to Black Friday and, and to Christmas trading you know, is one thing, but, um, you know, there's a, a demand for to replenish inventory as a result of the looting that's happened recently. You've got Black Friday, you've got Christmas trade coming up. But then you go back into the cycle. You know, there's a Chinese New Year, which happens towards the end of January, early Feb. So you're constantly having to make sure that you've got capacity on the vessels, that your suppliers are able to produce the goods, um, that the lead times are in place. So um, this juggling just talks to a new normal, which, uh, you know, it's around the planning of the supply chain. And the supply chain starts right, you know, from when the order is placed. You know, and this is weeks before goods are ready to ship, right through to when you anticipate you need them on the shelf. So... You know, in terms of the amount of inventory that needs to be kept to make sure you can make the sales, you know, this again will speak to the working capital situation of many importers. So, you know, guys are having to tie up their cash in inventory. And the last thing that businesses want to do is to to have increased lead times where, you know, they've paid for goods or they've they've made deposit payments against goods which are going to arrive, you know, weeks later. And if you miss the trading season, it becomes a, it becomes a disaster. You have to carry those goods up until, you know, the next potential sale. So, you know, the typical trading season in South Africa, there's Black Friday, there's uh, this holiday seasons around Christmas period, and then you've got Easter. But uh, And that, that's when the majority of sales happen. So planning supply chain, you know, around those times becomes quite tricky. Now, compounding the problem, you'll agree, is poor domestic infrastructure. So let me refer you, uh, Dr. Greg Klein, to a report from the World Bank that ranks Durban, which, if I'm not mistaken, handles over 60% of South Africa's container traffic, the worst of 351 ports surveyed around the world. But maybe a glimpse of sunlight here, you'll tell me. Transnet potentially looking to work with private companies on a 100 billion rand expansion of the port by 2023. Obviously, we still await more clarification, more details on that, but something that might alleviate some of the logjam that you're talking about. Absolutely. And this is this is most welcomed. I think, you know, one only has to look to some of the most efficient ports in the world to understand or to realize what the potential could be. So, for example, you know, I'll just look at a comparison between Ningbo, which is the busiest container port in the world, against Durban. So Ningbo has got 191 berths. Durban has got 58 births. So call it three, just over three and a half times the number of, of birthing potential. In terms of, of number of TUs, which they talk about 20 foot 
container equivalent, which is essentially a container. You know, Durban does approximately four and a half million container TU equivalents a year. Ningbo does 29 million. So all of a sudden you're starting to understand that the efficiencies in place in terms of the ability to birth a ship, unload a ship, you know, pass through a customs inspection, you know, move it onto rail, move it onto truck, move it out of port. All of these things talk to the capacity and the throughput. I think what is astounding is that when you look at Durban, there are about 31 million tons of cargo that pass through Durban a year. And and as you've correctly said, it's roughly about 60% of, of goods coming through the ports. Ningbo does a billion. So a billion tons of cargo. They have designed special terminals to manage crude oil. They've got uh, terminals which look through to manage liquid chemicals. And they've just signed a $650 million investment last year, which allow them to stockpile 4.1 million tons of iron ore, which is, uh, as you know, in the manufacture of steel. So, you know, they can process it there and they can transship those goods. And the majority of throughput that's coming through Ningpo are transshipments. Now, you know, to talk to transshipments, what that means to your listeners is, uh, you know, if you were going to fly to New York, you can get on a direct flight or you can fly via Dubai. So a transshipment is just an intermediary stop, which uh, allows another carrier to take you to your final destination. And that means increased revenue for that stop. And it means additional shipping routes, additional vessels, additional revenue. So... Ningbo, what they did is they established a free trade zone around that port uh, around about 1992, and the operator is a listed company. So it's 76% owned by the state. It's a, a, a listed entity that is operating that port as a, as a proper P&L entity. And what you've seen, the efficiencies, as I've described, are exponential compared to what Durban is able to offer at the moment. So there's no question that, you know, having some type of private enterprise role in managing the port can only be beneficial. And and I think we'll see an exponential increase in efficiencies and revenue coming into the country. And let's hope that happens. But having said that, Greg, and this is a final question I want to drop in, let's assume that we sort the port of Durban out, but we still have a dysfunctional rail network. And I don't need to tell you about the state of our roads. Absolutely. I think, you know, in the past, 80% of goods that arrived in Durban were, were railed, um, you know, to the rest of the country. Today, the inverse is true. So 20% of goods that arrive in Durban are railed. The, the rest is on road. And that's had a massive impact on road infrastructure, maintenance and costs. And there's a high dependency on fuel prices, a cost input into final product, you know, security concerns. Truck hijacking is is rampant. And all of these efficiencies just talk to supply chain and inbound logistics. And and it's so critical to get that last mile delivery in place to ensure that the end customer is in a position to actually purchase the goods. So ultimately, you're 100% correct. You know, we need to look to not only improve the port, but the connections from the port right through to the end customer, which will speak to improving the economy and, and ultimately growing GDP. An enormous amount of work needs to be done and at great cost as well. I'm going to thank Dr. Greg Klein, Head of Corporate Accounts for Investec for Business. Thank you very much for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thanks for having me. In every episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we pick a question about the world of money that's been on our listeners' minds, and we do our very best to answer it. If you have such a question, just go to investec.com dot com forward slash n-o-w that's investec.com forward slash n-o-w and share your conundrum with us 
This week we were spoilt for choice, so we settled on not one but two questions for Investec Chief Economist Annabel Bishop. Firstly, what's ailing the rand of late? And secondly, how can it be that South Africa's economy grew 11% overnight, thanks possibly to some fancy footwork by Stats SA? Annabel, hello and welcome again to No Ordinary Wednesday. I want to start with this if we can. Despite a continuing surge in commodity prices, we saw that our currency lost value since the beginning of August. But then this week, it bounced back to a two-week high against the dollar. What's behind the volatility? Hello, Jeremy. Look, I think um, we did see weakness, yes. But of course, today now we're seeing particular strength and such as the volatility of the rand. Look, as you said, we had um, seen the currency lose quite a bit of value. And that obviously even was since the June FOMC meeting, reiterating obviously in July. And that was on the anticipation markets had that the United States would engage in quantitative easing, tapering earlier. And that, of course, being this year as opposed to during next year. So that, of course, worried markets. Doesn't mean they're going to hack interest rates in the United States anytime soon. That's still expected in 2023. But what we actually saw very recently now, Jeremy, was on Friday, we saw the Jackson Hole Symposium. And that, as you know, is a examination of monetary policy in the US, particularly in, in, in um, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell's speech to the symposium. And, you know, that came out better than markets had expected. In other words, delivering what many ha- think or are calling a dovish taper. In other words, not withdrawing the asset purchases too quickly. As you know, quantitative easing sees the United States purchase a certain amount of assets each month to aid the economic recovery, boost liquidity in the markets, etc. And of course, that's been a very beneficial official for emerging market economies, portfolio assets, and for their currencies. So, you know, in a nutshell, the RAND seeing quite a bit of strength and, in fact, actually moving from um, above 15 last week, you know, substantially weaker, and, you know, really possibly on track to move to 14.55. And that's some good news. So, a lot of RAND strength coming through as a consequence of Friday's Jackson Hole Symposium communication, and really indicative of this volatility we have in the domestic currency. You've told me so many times in the past when we've conversed on this issue that when it comes to fluctuations in our currency, so much has got to do with global factors out of our control. So we're seeing an uptick here. Do you think that there is some sustainable strength that is creeping back into the currency or at this point? Is that uh, too difficult to call? It's a good question because I actually did want to talk about the domestic briefly before you know I answer your question, and particularly the fact that we have seen these GDP revisions last week to the size of our economy. The South African economy is now 11% larger than it was in June. Remember, June is when we got the second quarter GDP statistics out. We'll get another set um, in a month or so's time. But really what this means is that our debt to GDP ratios have actually moderated. So instead of being 80% last year, it's now at 71%. And of course, you know, as you would know, that's that's quite a big difference. And that really means that going forwards for the next three to five years, our ratios are going to be lower as well. Of course, unless the um, government loses control of its finances and sees a massive upward increase in borrowings, which we don't think. So that's quite positive as well. We've actually seen a bit of a moderation in the CDS spreads. And of course, that's the credit default swaps. And that really means that South Africa has seen a slightly lower risk. As I said, a very little drop, not a big drop. And that's because our debt is still at quite a high level. So the debt levels are still projected to be quite high, just as a percentage of GDP, you know, GDP becoming so much bigger, it's gone down. And I think that's also added a little bit to the RAND. And also, I understand there are seasonal factors at play here. In the month of August, as you know, Jeremy, it's the key summer holiday vacation period in the Northern Hemisphere. 
So most market players tend to be on holiday, and that really means a quite an elevation in risk off. In other words, you know, your senior market players not wanting risky positions in case something changes over the vacation period. And that's something we see every single year. And that's why the RAND is often weakest in the middle two quarters of the year. You know, even from May, you see the sell away and go away, go, go away and behavior in financial markets, bearing in mind that the vast majority of market players are in the Northern Hemisphere. But of course, if you have a look now where we sit, we're coming to to the end of August into September. That's usually a month where we see churn, another word for volatility. As many market players come back in the market, there's a bit of a realignment of positions. And that brings us into the fourth quarter where we do tend to see currency strength for the RAND. Indeed, the first and last quarters of the year, the winter quarters, if you will, or certainly the colder ones, often see a lot of RAND strength. And we say in the colder quarters for the Northern Hemisphere, and of course, the middle two quarters, the warmer quarters for the Northern Hemisphere, I tend to see quite a bit of RAND weakness. So that's some good news as well. So we think the RAND could pull stronger this year, even moving towards the 1435 mark, if not stronger than that. That's really our forecast at the moment, you know, an average of about 1455 for this quarter. That means the RAND's going to have to get quite a bit stronger in September. And then, of course, you know, the um, fourth quarter of the year, as we said, pulling a bit stronger as well. There are, of course, many, many risks. To this forecast, and I'll take you back to what we said at the start. The RAND is highly, highly volatile. And as you said, most often determined by international events, particularly in the US, but often what happens here at home as well. Annabelle, I'm glad you used the word churn. And this is the final question because there's a bit of churn in my head at the moment. And I need you to explain this to me. How can South Africa's economy suddenly be 11% bigger than we originally thought? Yes. So look, I think, first of all, there's nothing to worry about. Economies all over the world all revise their GDP figures. And what this really means is every five years or so, they do new surveys because things change. You know, technologies obviously become bigger parts of economies now. If you perhaps look at certain areas which would have have reduced, such as perhaps um, physical, you know, hard copies or soft copies of books. But of course, you know, in general, what we have seen in South Africa is the financial services sector, as that um, sector is known in GDP, has become quite a bit bigger. But it's not actually the financial services sector. It's actually your real estate property, all business or corporate activity, and of course, you know, including financial services and um, insurance as well. That's all become substantially larger. That's really helped the um, improvement in the size of the economy. Look, I think um, the reason why it's often called the financial service sector is that's just the first word, <laughs> the first couple of words out of a long list of components that go into it. So if you will, it's really corporate sector, private sector activity. And, you know, government sectors actually become a bit smaller, quite a bit smaller from the point of view that a lot of components have been shifted into personal care. And that's, you know, certain types of education, et cetera, but also, you know, a little bit smaller as well. What's really the, the bottom line here is that we've seen a increase in the fastest performing sectors of the economy, particularly this corporate, private financial services sector, uh, real estate included in there as well. And that obviously means that we will have a faster growth rate, I think, for this year. So we're looking at a growth rate of about 4.2% for GDP in 2021. We had 39 if you recall, just after the riots. And we probably um, feel maybe that would have been close to 4%, giving a lot of the July data that's been coming out now, indicating a, a, a hit economic activity as a consequence of the riots, but not completely devastating, although obviously there will be impact into August and September. But as we said, also as well, the revision to GDP. Overall, quite a few positive factors coming through, strengthening the currency, a better GDP outlook, not quite as damaged from the riots. Obviously, the elections are next up, <laughs> and those are on the 27th of October, but they could be postponed until February next year because of the very high level, the third wave still in South Africa. So, 
we then would see the MTBPS probably in November this year, and that's when we'll get a really good reading of all these changes in government finances, because of course as well, added to the mix, SARS has said they performed much better on a revenue collection front in the second quarter of this year, the first quarter of the financial year, and that of course also is positive for the RAND as well and for South Africa's outlook. As always, Annabel Bishop, Chief Economist at Investec, thank you very much for the analysis and the assessment, and uh, good to end this podcast on a positive note. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Do join us again on the 15th of September as we continue the discussion on money trends shaping your world. We've lined up another great panel of experts. So if you haven't yet subscribed, simply search for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.